Hello, and welcome back to Letterday Ramblings. I'm your host, Christina, as always, and today we are going to be discussing the October 2022 General Conference, which happened just last weekend. This is the first time that I haven't watched it live. Um, I've watched several talks and bits and pieces um, afterwards, after it came out, and I knew what was interesting and what wasn't. Um, but there are some things that I think we should discuss and that have been discussed on um, the ex-Mormon sphere online. Um, but yeah, so we're going to get into it today. So last time I discussed General Conference on this show, um, I opened with a diversity report. Um, and yeah, I guess I'll do the same. Across all the five sessions of General Conference last weekend, there were 36 speakers. Of those 36 speakers, 32 were men, 4 were women, 27 were white, and 9 were people of color. And within those people of color, there was the first black woman to ever speak in conference. Uh, which is pretty um, huge, but also shouldn't be. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's 2022. We're making a huge fuss about this. It's like, you know, it's great that the church is becoming more diverse, but to what end, you know? And the thing is, so this woman is called Tracy Browning, um, and the thing is that her talk doesn't feel unique. It doesn't feel genuine, as does no talk in all of the conference ever, because they are um, precariously rewritten and, you know, reread. Uh, proofread by committees and rewritten again and it's just it loses all its soul and just individual meaning um, which is unfortunate of course um, because I feel like general conference would get a lot less boring if we would see a bit more individuality a bit less of the same so what I'm saying is that the diversity issue is not just in who is represented but how they are represented um, you know, you can represent all these um, women and people of color, but if you don't let them have their own unique voice and they have to keep up with the exact standards that, you know, white people or like the leaders of the church who are white men um, force upon them, then it doesn't really make any difference. So it's really about, you know, who has the power here, really? And we all know who it is. Anyway, okay, let's start getting into the content of these talks. Um, I wanted to start with Dallin Oak's talk from the first session. And I was pissed off when I heard this. Okay, so this is the first talk that was given in all of General Conference, and they start talking about money. And they start bragging about how much they've given to charity. And it's just like, it feels so desperate. But okay, so what Oaks says um, is that uh, the church has given a total of $900 million to uh, humanitarian and charities organizations um, over in over 188 countries and all of this. Um, but the thing is, that money was not the church's money. <laughs> that money was made up of extra donations from the members that the church managed but was not given to the church. There's a difference, because if this money came out of tithing, for example, which then is legally the church's money, that would be, oh, the, the church gave that amount to charity. But that is not what is happening here 
which means that Oakes is very carefully manipulating the audience into thinking that the church is very giving uh, when it comes to this. But even if the church itself had given $900 million to charities in, what was it, a year? It's not impressive when you consider that they have $100 billion just sitting around, uh, that they in invest in all kinds of companies and stuff and the, in real estate. Like, it's borderline insane. Um, and it's very sad. It is very sad because there's so much more they could do. And I wish they would. I wish they would. They have all this capital and they don't do anything useful with it but increase the amount of wealth they have to no particular end. They just like to increase it, it seems. I just don't understand what their end goal is. Like, if they want good PR, create good PR. They have the means to do that, to do actual good stuff. Like, even if they want to better their reputation, you can do actual things to accomplish that. That's what I'm saying. It's just honestly absurd, but okay. But yeah, it's just in general a re really weird note to start it off with, to talk about money. Like, of course, it's about helping others. But is it really what it's about, though? Because I feel like it's a desperate attempt to be like, hey guys, yeah, we give to charity, we do. Look at these numbers, you know? And it's just inauthentic and unconvincing, to be honest. Anyway, the next talk that is given is by Dieter Uchtdorf, which used to be my favorite apostle, but um, he has something very important to announce. Um, they've updated the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet, uh, which is great. You know, first of all, let me just um, focus on the positive. That is a good thing. Uh, what they have done is they've taken out a lot of the specific rules and made it more principle-based so that the youth can make their own choices about their own life, which is how it should be, <laughs> you know? But they've kept guidelines in there and whatever. So overall, it's a good choice and great job to them. But there are still a few issues, I would say. So let's take a look at this pamphlet. Um, I'll read the index so you get an idea of what it looks like. Um, so in the previous version, there were sections like, uh, like modesty, like dating, like sex, you know, all of these things. But now it's a more vague categorization. So it's like, make inspired choices. Jesus Christ will help you. Love God, love your neighbor. Walk in God's light. Your body is sacred. Truth will make you free. Find joy in Christ. Those are all the, you know, the chapter headings, I guess. And they really put a lot more emphasis on Jesus and on Jesus' forgiveness and repentance and loving your neighbor and loving everyone, you know? And that's great. Um, but let, let's look at the section of your body is sacred, uh, which is basically what used to be the modesty and chastity part of the last one. Um, so what they've changed is they've removed the specific rule about tattoos and piercings, so those are technically okay again, um, although it's still kind of implied that if you respect your body, you would abstain from them. And I guess previous generations who grew up with the previous versions of the pamphlet will still teach what was taught before, and it's just, it takes a while to phase out old teachings, of course, but this is a step in the right direction, and I'm glad. Um, 
uh, sexual feelings are an important part of God's plan. Um, so it says that it's like sexual feelings are good, they're natural, but they should only happen within this context, which is actually the same as what was written in the last one, basically. God only approves of sexual activity between a man and a woman who are married. Uh, so heteronormativity, homophobia is still rampant in this version, as we are not surprised to see. Then there's this bit that says, treat your body and others' bodies with respect. I like the addition of others' bodies because it discourages abuse and it encourages boundaries, and that is great. Um, so, yeah. In this version, pornography is still uh, discouraged, masturbating is still pretty much forbidden. Um, it says that if you break the law of chastity um, in any way, you should still go see the bishop or at least talk about it with your parents, uh, which in my opinion is not great, since at least masturbation and I guess on a lesser level, pornography have been demonstrated to be healthy in moderation, of course. Like, if you are obsessed with it or addicted to it and you can't stop doing it, obviously that's not okay. But for the vast majority of humans, it's just a natural part of human sexuality, right? And there's no shame in that. And there also isn't any shame in premarital sex or homosexual intimacy of any kind. It's all okay as long as it's consensual and as long as you know what you're doing. Then there's this bit that says, do things that will strengthen your body. Um, it says, remember that alcohol, tobacco, coffee, tea, and other harmful drugs and some substances are not for your body or your spirit. So it still lists coffee and tea under harmful substances, but they are not proven to be harmful. At least tea isn't. I've heard some things about coffee, about it only being okay in moderation, as are most things. Um, but yeah, of course, science should have the upper hand on this, because obviously they're the ones doing actual research and not just asking Sky Daddy what to do. Um, but yeah. Sorry if that's blunt, but the thing is that I don't understand people's instinct to trust these leaders, which have not been proven to be able to speak to God, who just claim to speak for God, like a bunch of other people in the world right now. Like, what makes you think that these people are the right ones in interpreting what God has to say? Oh, a warm feeling in your chest that those same leaders told you meant that they were right. Seems very reliable. <laughs> and then, in the same chapter, there's this section, in the, like the, the Q&A section, which is like below the main text, there's this question, am I, tr I am attracted to people of my same sex. How do these standards apply to me? And then the answer is, feeling same-sex attraction is not a sin. If you have these feelings and do not pursue or act on them, you are living Heavenly Father's sacred law of chastity. You are a beloved child of God and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember that the Savior understands everything you experience. Through your covenant connection with Him, you will find strength to obey God's commandments and receive the blessings He promises, trust Him in His gospel. So yeah. It's the same thing that they've taught for like 10 years, I guess, that, you know, it's not a, it's not a sin to be gay, but it's a sin to be gay. <laughs> it's a sin to act gay, which is what it means to be gay is to act in gay ways, is to express your homosexuality. Like, do I act straight? Is that what I'm doing? I'm, I am straight. 
<laughs> you know? And that is just part of who I am and of what I do and, you know, my feelings towards other people, my romantic feelings and the love I feel for people. It's just insane the way that they do, that they talk about this, like same-sex attraction, they talk about struggling with same-sex attraction. Do I struggle with opposite-sex attraction? I just, they've created this problem that doesn't exist and then they call it a struggle and it's so patronizing and I hate it. I hate it every time I hear it, but it just, oh, I feel so bad for all the youth that read this who think they might be gay or bi and they're like, I guess there's something wrong with me. Like, you can say that it's not wrong to be gay, but that's still what you're implying because it's such a fundamental part of who you are that you can't just ignore it for the rest of your life like that. That's what they want you to do. They want you to be abstinent. They want you to be not even just absent, like, not romantically active at all. And it's just, I don't know, it's it's horrendous. It is, it's horrible. It's horrible, and I can't believe they kept this still in this version. Like, I thought, you know, maybe you can just update this, please. But they have not chosen to do that. Which sucks. Um, and they, <laughs> they also say, like, remember that the Savior understands everything you experience. So Jesus knows what it's like to be gay? Was Jesus gay? <laughs> it's kind of what's subtly implied here. That would be really ironic if that were true. Um, but yeah, never mind. Um, and the next question in the Q&A section is, I was abused and I feel ashamed. Am I guilty of sin? The answer is, being a victim of any abuse or assault does not make you guilty of sin. Please do not feel guilt or shame. The Savior loves you. He wants to help you, heal you, and give you peace. Professional counselors, your family members, and your leaders can also help. Which is good. That's a good answer. But why is this person feeling ashamed in the first place? Why do you think? Maybe because the church has perpetuated the idea that the victims are the ones to blame by the way they dress, which was active, which was happening because of the last version of this pamphlet. And it's just, oh my god. It pisses me off. It pisses me off because they're not owning up to anything they did. They're just swiping it under the rug and rewriting history, and it pisses me off. Then, in the next chapter, which is called Truth Will Make You Free, in the Q&A section, there's this question. Is it wrong to have questions about the church? How can I find answers? This is a very spicy one. Let's see what their answer is. Having questions is not a sign of weakness or lack of faith. In fact, asking questions can help build faith. The restoration of the gospel started when 14-year-old Joseph Smith asked questions with faith. Seek answers in the scriptures and in the words of God's prophets, from your leaders and faithful parents, and from God himself. If answers don't come right away, trust that you will learn line upon line. Keep living by what you already know and keep seeking for truth. So it's the same, it's basically the same that they've said for like a decade or longer, I don't know. But it's just like, it's okay to ask questions, but just ask questions with faith. When when you're questioning the church, you're questioning the fabric of reality they've created for you. And if you just go searching within the sources and within the, you know, the text that they recommend you, that they find reliable, quote unquote, that just paddle their own 
ideology and their own ideas about what happened in the history and what it means, then of course you're going to come to the conclusion that the church is true. That's the narrative that they've been spoon-feeding you and that they've told you to look for, and they don't accept any other conclusion as being true. It's dishonest, it's manipulative, and it's not okay. If this version of the pamphlet is about agency, it's about finding out for yourself, choosing for yourself, you know, living your own life, but they don't want that. They're only giving the appearance of that. It's all an illusion. And this most exemplifies that. Because the only reason they're so protective about this is because they know that you'll find something that'll contradict what has been taught to you your whole life. It's because they're scared. If they were confident in their own message and in their own truth claims, they would not care about you going out and searching for answers and going on the internet and going to Wikipedia. It's just incredible. It is incredible. <laughs> but what they say is that, oh, Satan will mislead you into thinking that it's the truth when it's not the truth at all, but it's not what happens. People have rational brains. They are able to distinguish rational arguments from complete bullshit ones. We are, <laughs> and that's how we find out what is true and what isn't. We gather all relevant information and we draw a conclusion from that. We don't start with a conclusion and then gather arguments to support that. That's not how truth or science works. Anyway, moving on from the pamphlet uh, to the next talk. Um, a quick word about Elder Renlund's talk about personal revelation. Um, so in this case, people were joking about that he gave a talk about airplanes, which Dieter of Uchtdorf usually does. So he like take he took over his role or something, um, whatever. So he says that, like airplane pilots, people need to understand the framework within which the Holy Ghost functions to provide personal revelation. Four elements to this, pre to this framework are uh, the scriptures, purview, not prerogative, harmony with commandments, and trust and openness. So um, what that means is that you get personal revelations um, from the scriptures, uh, have, they have to be within your purview, uh, so within your area of like relevancy. So you can't get personal revelation for someone else, just for your own life. And if you're, you know, the head of the household uh, for your whole family, um, they have to be in harmony with commandments, um, and you have to be open to receive further personal revelation uh, and trust God. I guess that is what he's saying, and it's just a whole big bag of nothing, to be honest, uh, what he's saying, <laughs> because, you know, it doesn't really matter. Personal revelation can never be different from what uh, the commandments have said, from what the scriptures have stated, so it's basically useless, um, and yeah, no, he's confirmed that here, so that's basically what I have to say. <laughs> um, but this quote really really establishes that. So he says, if we have received personal revelation for our situation and the circumstances have not changed, God has already answered our question. It's like the whole, you know, you should have faith not to be healed kind of thing. You know, that if if nothing happens and you're not given a solution to your problem, then, you know, the problem is a blessing because it gives you an obstacle to overcome and strengthen your character. And it's just like, like, 
the thing is that Mormonism sees life as a story. It's like a narrative and it's well structured and everything has a point, everything has a purpose, and all the obstacles and all the bad things are there for good reasons and they lead to good in the end. Like strengthening your character, becoming a better person. Um, and it's just bullshit. It, it just is. And it's also obviously written from a perspective of men with extreme privilege. Like, otherwise, you wouldn't say this shit. You wouldn't mean this. And this is also very interesting to consider uh, when it comes to Isaac K. Morrison's talk uh, later in the conference. So he talks about this time that his wife received a prompting that they should check on their 18-month-old. And Isaac, the speaker... Um, dismisses it. And then they find their baby dead. Um, and the way, like, it's a very tragic story, but the way he spins it, and the way the audience reacts, and the way they turn it into, they simplify it into one principle, and turn it into a joke. And it is honestly horrifying. Like, I think you should listen to this. I'm gonna put it on. One second. We found little 18-month-old Kenneth, helpless in a bucket of water, unseen by his brothers. We rushed him to the hospital, but all attempts to revive him proved futile. We were devastated that we would not be able, we would not have the opportunity to raise our precious child during this mortal life. Though we knew Kenneth would be part of our family eternally, I find myself questioning why God would let this tragedy happen to me when I was doing all I could to magnify my calling. I had just come home from ministering, from fulfilling one of my duties in ministering to the saints. Why couldn't God look upon my service and save our son and our family from this tragedy? The more I thought about it, the more bitter I became. My wife never blamed me for not responding to her promptings, but I learned a life-changing lesson and made two rules never to be broken. Rule number one, listen to and heed the promptings of your wife. Rule number two, if you are not sure, for any reason, refer to rule number one. So that's it. That is it. That is it. He told the story, and then he's like, why did God do this to me? Which is a fair question. It's a great question. You know, it's the problem of evil. It's the problem of pain. Why would God let this happen? Because they believe, obviously, in an omnipotent God who controls everything. So he had some say over the child dying or not. Mormons wouldn't go as far as to say that God killed the baby, but, you know, lack of action can still be murder. Um, even, like, in our uh, system of morality uh, on Earth, that is, you know, if someone is dying and you don't do anything to help them, uh, then that is still considered murder. Like, a recent example that I came across in uh, Breaking Bad in the second season, I think the last episode, uh, that Walter White uh, comes into Jesse's bedroom, he breaks into the house and sees Jesse sleeping there with his girlfriend, and the girlfriend's, you know, he pushes her over accidentally, so she lands on her back, 
and she starts choking on her own vomit. Um, and he just watches it happening. And we know that he doesn't like her um, in the story of the show. And he just lets it happen. And he just lets her die. And it's the most disturbing point in the show uh, up until that point. So yes, I would argue that God is a murderer in pretty much every aspect. But this is not that's not what this discussion is about. So the way he tells the story, he wraps it up in a tight tight, uh, neat little bow, uh, saying that, you know, you should always listen to your wife, and plays it off as a joke, which is not only, you know, kind of misogynistic, um, but it's just very not, not the tone, not the tone that we're going for. We just, you just a minute ago told us about the tragic death of your 18-month-old baby, and you're joking about it. It's just, like, I know that humor is a way to cope with grief, but this seems incredibly insensitive. And the reason he's probably doing this is because he believes that little Kenneth is okay and that they're going to see him in heaven again. But that is not necessarily true. Like, you don't know that. You have no idea what's going to happen. And that's what I think is kind of incredibly, kind of evil, honestly, of the church to give people such false expectations with no, you know, with no basis in fact. And of course it's hopeful, of course, you know, it gives people hope and it makes people feel better, but if it's not grounded in anything real, then it's only really doing harm, at least in my opinion. Like, of course, other people could have other opinions about this, but I think it's just harmful. Like, this entire idea is harmful. But of course, don't, this is not me attacking Isaac Morrison, this is me attacking the ideas that the church perpetuates, which are not even just of the Mormon church, but I guess Christianity in general. Um, but okay, we're gonna move on to the next talk, which is Jeffrey R. Holland's talk called Lifted Up Upon the Cross, and it's basically um, him renouncing the wearing of cross jewelry, so... He says, it's about the crosses we bear, not about the crosses we wear, which is very, you know, clever wordplay and everything, and I'm pretty sure it's going to catch on. But he says that, you know, to be a follower of Christ means to have burdens and to carry them with pride and to just take it like a man. <laughs> and um, like I said before, to learn from it and to strengthen your character from it, because that's all that problems really do. They can only build you up. They cannot debilitate you in any way. Um, because that's how life works, of course. But um, an important part of the talk is uh, around the end when he says, um, when he talks about various marginalized groups and how he empathizes, I can't speak, empathizes with their situation. Um, and he says this. I know those who are fighting mental illness of many kinds who plead for help as they pray and pine and claw for the promised land of emotional stability. I know those who live with debilitating poverty, but defying despair, ask only for the chance to make better lives for their loved ones and others, those in need around them. I know many who wrestle with wrenching matters of identity, gender, and sexuality. I weep for them, and I weep with them, knowing how significant 
the consequences of their decisions will be. Right. Right. And, okay, so let me be clear. On the surface, this is very nice, and no Bolivia member will be like, oh, this is bigoted, and this is kind of mean, what he says. But it's all about subtext to me. It's all about subtext. It's about, you need to think deeper than just what they are saying. So, Jeffrey R. Holland is listing off all these problems that people can have, and how people are struggling, and that he feels for them, and that, you know, one day, it's gonna be okay. And, you know, on the surface, great message. But, okay. So he talks about people who have mental illness, who um, are poverty-stricken, and who wrestle with uh, gender and sexuality issues, is what he says. Um, but all those three issues are technically either the church's or God's fault in some way. Let me explain. So the mental illness would be God's fault, for example, because God, of course, controls everything, uh, controls how people are born, and people are usually born with like predisposition for mental illnesses, uh, the several risks or several factors in their lives contribute to it, so God has control over that. And he causes people to have mental illnesses or just lets it happen and doesn't do anything. That is what is happening, according to Mormon theology, right? Because he can do anything, <laughs> but he chooses not to, and that's what makes him the bad guy in the story. Um, when it comes to poverty, I would say it's more the church's fault, because the church demands 10% of people's income at all times. Like, we saw Russell M. Nelson go to Africa, like, poor areas of Africa, and preach about tithing. It was completely disgusting and disturbing, but that is what the church preaches. And the church is contributing to the poverty of people. Um, so there's that. And then when it comes to gender and sexuality, these are not even real issues. These are just issues that the church has invented, and that is why people are struggling. People would not be struggling if the church had not created these arbitrary rules or arbitrary sins um, that cause people to struggle with who they are as a person. It is the church's fault that people are feeling like this when they should not at all. It's okay to feel like you're a different gender or like you're non-binary. It's okay to feel like you're attracted to the opposite gender or to multiple genders. Like, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. And it's the only reason you think it's wrong or you feel that it's wrong or people struggle with shame or, you know, mental illness comes with this as well or idea, uh, ideas of self-harm or suicidal ideation. It's all because of what the church perpetuates and the ideology that it spouts, it is the church's fault. And that's what pisses me off about this talk, is he says, I weep with you. I weep with you. Don't weep with them. You are the one causing them to weep in the first place. It is disgusting. If you think about it like that, and it's just, it is disgusting. And I can't bear it. I can't. I just, I do not like this man one bit. So what I'm saying is, if you think about the subtext, the context of what he's saying, it just sounds incredibly disingenuous. Moving on to, I think, the last talk uh, of this episode, I would say, and that is Russell M. Nelson's talk about the church's position on abuse, and that it is an abomination to the Lord. He says, the Savior will not tolerate abuse, and as his disciples, neither can we. 
Um, he says that people are accountable before God, and it just, basically what he says is, abuse is bad. Abuse is bad, and abuse shouldn't happen. Abuse is bad. And sure, it's a good message on the surface. And this is this, this is a thing, it's the same thing as with the last talk. They sound good on the surface, but if you consider the church's role in these matters, it completely changes your perspective on what they're saying. And in this case, it's the same. So he's talking about the abuse, abuse is bad, and he talks about the abuse of individuals, and of course that's important, um, but abuse is reported to the church. What does the church do with abuse that is reported? And in the bishop's handbook, it says that he should call a specific hotline um, for bishops when this happens, and it basically connects to a bunch of lawyers. They immediately try not to get the word out of what is happening. They want to handle it internally, they say, but they just want to keep things quiet so that it doesn't harm their image and reputation. And this is well documented of uh, scandals of the church covering up uh, sex abuse, child sex abuse, like anything, even by the leaders of their own church. Um, there's this uh, website that kind of details um, the cases that have happened. It's on topclassactions.com. Um, so they say, like, several families have alleged that even after reporting sexual abuse by a teen church leader, the Mormon church failed to protect their children. In February, a Mormon church bishop and driver's ed teacher in Oregon pleaded guilty to six counts of 30 degree, of third degree sex abuse stemming from assaults on several of his teen students. Um, a woman whose husband confessed to LDS church leaders he'd had inappropriate sexual contact with his minor daughter has filed a lawsuit against the church alleging her husband's confession-like communications should have been kept confidential. Uh, accounts of abuse within the church date back decades, with survivors confiding in trusted church leaders they thought would protect them and hold the accused accountable, but often to no avail. Nothing happens to the abuser. The abuser it's all, it's all swept under the rug because it would harm the church's image. And that is what this is ultimately about. They care more about themselves than the people who are being harmed by their appointed leaders in congregations. And it is honestly horrible. And it's just, I would, I would uh, encourage you to read through this whole article because there's too much to go through. Um, for example, such is the case of a woman who says that her father raped her as a child as a form of punishment. When she reported the abuse, church leaders allegedly left the issue, quote, in the hands of God. Because God is the ultimate judge, right? So they said, you know, we don't need to report this to authorities. They don't need to do anything. They don't, don't need to be consequences in this life. There'll be consequences in the next life. It is borderline insane. It is borderline insane. And it is fucking horrible and I just I hate even reading this because it's it's real and it's happening and it's still happening it's been happening for decades or not not even decades it's been happening since the beginning of the church because the church was founded on non-consensual polygamy the church was founded on coercion and therefore rape sex abuse that's what it was that was based on. That's this whole thing. God, I am getting pissed off. Um, it's not okay. 
it's not okay for Russell and Nelson to be like, you know, abuse is bad and leave it at that. Not even own up to the church's responsibility in these matters and covering them up and not apologizing for their past. And it is just horrendous. It's horrendous. And there's no excuse. There is zero excuse for letting this happen, for for this still happening after numerous lawsuits that they can get away from because of their money. They are shirking responsibility when they really should repent. They should follow their own advice and repent. And maybe then the people harmed would forgive them and they would earn their good image. But right now they have not. And I don't forgive them. And no one should right now, honestly. <sighs> yeah. That's a lot. I know it's a lot. It's it's just, this is, it really riles me up. But never mind. I am just going to leave it at that. Um, that was the 2022 October General Conference. And basically all I have to say about that. Um, thanks for listening. And I hope I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Have a good day.